Coming up on Philosophy Talk, dualism, the mind and the body. Where am I? It's so dark. In a doctor's laboratory. Am I all right? You're a disembodied brain kept alive by a scientist. But we're talking. I must at least have a lips, a, a tongue, a throat. Nothing, just a jar. Consciousness, physicalism. Is brain to the mind as hardware is to software? Is the mind something over and above the brain? Our guest is David Rosenthal from City University of New York. I understand you correctly. You want me to remove your brain and put it in a tank with number 21? Yes, we can communicate. We're in love. It's the only way we can be together. Put me in a tank. Dualism, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, dualism. So, dualism, what's that all about? Well, let's start with Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore I am. Descartes getting at the idea that he's a mind, and for a mind to exist is for it to think. And he thinks that's much different than what it is for a body to exist. A body is material, and it exists by taking up space. So minds, bodies, two different kinds of things, dualism. John, you've just described Cartesian, or also called substance dualism, but there's also another form of dualism that's actually more common today. That's called property dualism. It says, yeah, mind and brain are the same stuff, but that one thing, that one stuff, has two different kinds of properties, mental properties and physical properties. Well, that's a pretty subtle distinction, but, but with the either version, we have to remind ourselves to start this discussion, what, what exactly we mean by the mental. Now, suppose I say something obvious, like Ken weighs more than 100 pounds, or something that used to be true, like Ken has black hair. It's still mostly black. I've ascribed physical properties to him, weight and, and hair color. But if I say Ken is thinking about lunch or intends to take a bike ride tomorrow, then I've ascribed mental properties to him. That's right. And, and within the mental, we, we can also make some distinctions between thoughts on the one hand and experiences on the other. The properties that you were just mentioning, uh, what I was thinking about, what I intended to do, they're on the thought side because they're about something. They're about the lunch or about the bike riding. On the other hand, if I say that Ken's elbow itches or his coffee tastes good to him or he has a headache, I would be talking about Ken's experiences. What's important about experiences is not what they're about, if anything, but what they're like. Thoughts are there to be about something and get it true or false. Experiences just are. They just happen. Well, yeah, that, that's right. But, you know, a lot of the stuff on the mental side combines both thought and experience. Take an emotion like anger. Suppose you're angry about the high price of gas. Now, that anger would involve both thought-like elements because there would be something it's about, but there's also this characteristic feeling of anger that you get when you have that emotion. So we've got thoughts and experience in combination. Well, perception is another example of this combination. When I see Ken's smiling face... I have a sensation, an experience. My visual field is filled in a certain way with this smiling face. 
But but thoughts are also involved. I, I, I recognize from it that Ken is in front of me. I think he's smiling. He's happy, mm. at least for the moment. So, okay, we've got thoughts and experiences, and we've got combinations of them. But here, here's where do these come from, and, and what are they for? I mean, everyone agrees, right, even the dualist agrees, that our mental states depend on, they're caused by states of the brain. I mean, John, you see me smiling because of a process of light bouncing off me, then entering your eyes, and then having a physical effect on your brain. Right, and and almost everyone agrees that it also goes the other way. For example, my seeing Ken smile, that is, that's mental, that might lead me to say, what are you so happy about in this miserable excuse for a world? So my my sensation and thoughts about Ken end up making my mouth move. My so, thoughts affect my brain and thus my body. So given that, you know, the question for me is why would anyone think that mind and mental properties or mind and the brain are different stuffs or properties over and above the brain and its properties anyway? I mean, it seems obvious because of this causal interaction you just talked about. Well, maybe so, but it seems just as obvious if you think about it. Uh, at least it seems obvious that they're not the same. I mean, does it make sense to ask what a thought looks like? How big a pain is? Or how much some anger weighs? Well, you know, okay, we've got two kind of warring uh, feelings here. And to help us sort this out, we're luckily joined by an expert, David Rosenthal, from City University of New York. He'll join us in a bit to help straighten us both out, John. If you'd like to join the conversation, you'll have to get your minds to tell your brains to tell your fingers to dial 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Now, David Rosenthal is not a dualist himself, but there are many dualist scientists out there. And our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, spoke to a prominent one about the dualist perspective. She files this report. For David Chalmers of the Australian National University, it all comes down to experience. Now, I'm not talking about how experienced a philosopher you are. I mean subjective, personal experience. For example, seeing the color red. Now, there's an objective element to this, you know, um, some photons will hit your retina and send signals up your optic nerve, and eventually you might come up with some sort of response, like, that's red. But there's also a subjective aspect to this, as anyone who's ever actually seen red for themselves knows, there's a, a way it is from the inside, that distinctive reddish quality that you experience for yourself. And there really seems to be this gulf between the objective processes and the subjective one. Now, a materialist would believe that we'll bridge that gap just as soon as we know enough about the science of the brain. Chalmers doesn't buy it. I think that's an sort of an admirably open-minded attitude in a certain way, but I'm not sure that it really faces up to the, uh, to the deeper mysteries of consciousness, the character of the problem we're faced here, of why it feels like something from the inside to be such a system. And so for that reason, I think, the, uh, I think the challenge to physical science isn't just a challenge to what we know now, but a challenge to what you can get out of the physical sciences in principle. So no matter how much detailed knowledge we have about the workings of the brain, Chalmers believes it will never be enough to explain what it's like to be inside your head, even if we knew so much that we could artificially reproduce a human brain. And I think it's actually quite possible that we could end up creating artificial consciousness without fully understanding consciousness. After all, this is something that, you know, we all do, if not, you know, every day, then every generation. We, uh, we create, we bring new consciousness into existence without having any idea what we're doing. Y- you mean having children. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we've produced consciousness, but we haven't understood consciousness. 
But if you can replicate all the physical things that create consciousness and that will give rise to consciousness, then what is it that's missing? What is it that's not there? Well, it's just a dis basic distinction here between, say, correlation and explanation. We already know that you, know, you hit someone on the head, um, or you give them a certain kind of drug, you affect their consciousness in certain ways. I close my eyes and I'm no longer visually conscious. But that's just a level of correlation. You affect my brain, you affect consciousness. What we want out of science is explanation and understanding of why there's consciousness there in the first place at all. And that, Chalmers believes, is the final frontier that physical science may not be able to cross. Sure, he says, science has explained a lot of things that seemed mystical before, germs, magnetic fields, reproduction. But just because it's worked, you know, here and there doesn't mean it's going to work for absolutely everything. And I think everyone recognizes that consciousness poses really special challenges here. I mean, even people who are very much um, you know, otherwise sold on the materialist picture of the world often recognize that right now we just can't see how such a physical explanation will go. When I think about the materialist future, in which science has explained so much that there's nothing left to feelings or the imagination, it strikes me as kind of sad. I asked Chalmers if he felt that way too. I can just say that's not what motivates me at all. There is a natural phenomena here. It's perfectly reasonable to try to explain it in physical terms and to try to reduce it. But once you actually try to do it, once you look at the phenomena, you see there's, there's actually quite good reasons why it's not going to work on scientific grounds. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.